Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. This past week, the IMF World Bank meetings here in Washington, D.C. brought the world's elite here to town to talk all things concerning the global economy from banking and climate to national security and fintech. So with quite literally the world here in town tackling all the big global issues, I felt that it was only appropriate that we do the same here on The Beat. And being the opportunistic law professor, I wanted to take a moment to ask a question. That's quite frankly been on my mind for a while, and which is circulating around nowadays, especially in the crypto universe. You see, the European Union, as we've discussed on some earlier episodes, has created quite a stir by releasing the first comprehensive package of rules for crypto called Mika, which has in turn prompted a slew of regulatory responses around the world, including in the United Kingdom which is all the more interesting in a post-Brexit world and given the UK's own enormous capital markets. So to help walk us through just what the UK is doing and how it may or may not dovetail with Mika, I've asked Barney Reynolds, the UK super lawyer on financial regulation at Sherman & Sterling, to stop by the show. Now, Barney has spent his career studying the intersection of UK, EU, and US law. And he's advised top policymakers around the world on the latest in technology. So we are in for a treat today as he brings his own very unique perspective. Barney, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be back. I think we should just jump right to it. Uh, Just when you sit back and take a look at crypto land around the world, uh, crypto is hanging in there, sometimes by a thread, sometimes looking pretty perky and resilient, given uh, all the busts and crises in confidence that we've seen. But from your professional standpoint, what's your sense as to how digital assets are being evaluated and uh, viewed, especially from a regulatory perspective? Well, I mean, I, I presume you're uh, referring principally to FTX. Um, I mean, as I see it, as I see it, there's a flight to quality now in crypto, not least um, driven by the industry itself. And so, people, the businesses, ha- having started up, many of them in offshore jurisdictions where there's either no regulation or a sort of fig leaf version of regulation, as in some rules that were written, but with zero supervision taking place in practice or not meaningful or sophisticated supervision. Now, the crypto companies themselves are wanting to set up in a place where there are sophisticated rules and they're properly supervised. And so the UK, as a completely separate matter, has been grappling with what to do with the sector. Uh, And the timing is is propitious in the sense that the UK is now looking to regulate um, crypto. And I'm hearing from a lot of people in the market that they're putting other plans on hold um, to see what the UK does. And if the UK does a good job uh, to set up in the UK because of its uh, highly regarded um, legal framework, regulatory approach and supervisory system, you know, with very sophisticated supervisors. 
so I think so I think I think there's a been a there's a market shift happening from offshore to onshore and from less credible to more credible. Uh, and there are you know there there are sort of countries in between that have had a shot at this, as you know about you know the Singapore and, and various others. But I think you know with the UK system, with um, the dispersal of power, which means no one person or group of people are in charge, which means that the whole thing once it's put in place is robust and and not capable of being gamed or, or fiddle around with adversely to anyone. You know, I think if, if, if it's done right, I think it'll be a proper attractive regime. Well, that's uh, really interesting, hearing a hold of sorts taking place in the market, almost a kind of a look and see or, or, or trust but verify, really, I guess whatever you want to call it, uh, for folks looking at the legal regime and how it shapes up, uh, which I think is a great transition to talking about what that legal regime will look like in practice. Um, I know that the UK approach has not exactly come into the space arms wide open, but is actually a bit modulated. Uh, I know the universe of crypto assets is is really vast, but maybe you can talk to us about what the UK approach looks like in in practice, or at least uh, touch on some of the high points. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should say in terms of where the UK is now, essentially there's a ban on crypto derivatives being sold to retail and there's some detail to unpack there but essentially that's where we are and there's a registration requirement for crypto firms in relation to aml you know money laundering rules and some big names have failed on the compliance front on that and have not been allowed to enter even on that limited basis what what the uk is looking to do is to perhaps best split into two first is to implement something the uk was part of agreeing at an international level which is a regulatory framework for stablecoin. So uh, regulating the issuance and facilitation of the use of stablecoins as a means of payment in the UK, which I think, you know, and obviously that brings with it all sorts of subtleties about, you know, what the assets need to be underpinning the stablecoin, what types of stablecoin can be used as means of payment and which are safer and so on. And so there's a lot of sophisticated work to be done there, but that's the first work stream. And tagged along to that, the UK, like other sort of countries or economic units, like if you talk about the ECB um, and the Eurozone, are looking to introduce um, a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, or at least considering investigating uh, whether it would be a sensible thing to have or not. And which is a huge deal. Like many people, I I received a little note, a little ping in my email from, uh, you know, the Bank of England and, you know, sort of saying that they were going down or at least considering this, this path. And, you know, it was, it was really interesting. You know, I was like, wow, you know, there, that, that's, that's uh, a quite sort of explicit nod, at least of, of interest uh, to, to, to launching a CBDC. So, so we have stablecoin, possibly maybe a CBDC. Uh, before we get into sort of the other sort of market stuff, I think it could be useful, particularly for all of us in, and for this U.S. audience, to kind of explain, you know, when we talk about rules and rulemaking in the U.K., you know, how is that kind of done? Because, you know, here in the United States, it's 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 a little bit more challenging and getting rules through can be a little bit more daunting. You know, how does that rulemaking look, process look? in the UK, like, like, how do you actually create rules for these kinds of things? And how much consensus is required? So the main framework is statutory. And in the UK system, you know, the, the Treasury is consulting, which is which is obviously a department of government. Um, and then the government, the Treasury will put forward um, any legislative tweaks 
required to the current infrastructure, statutory infrastructure, to Parliament for a vote uh, in both houses, House of Commons, House of Lords. And that's a, a you know a well-worn process. Obviously, you know I, I don't think in this case it's going to be that political. Um, a lot of this is technical. Um, there will be a lot of detailed debates, uh, pro- probably in the House of Lords, where there are sort of experts in city affairs to some degree that will will engage in some of the detail and perhaps the way that the Commons will will, will less so. But nevertheless, you know, I don't think that process is going to be too lengthy. And then the rules underneath what's happening, you know, and we'll, we'll get on to the market stuff, you know, will, will be set out in it by the regulators in their rule books. Um, and that's particularly true of the market stuff, you know, things like market abuse and what doesn't doesn't constitute market abuse and so on. That can be done by the regulators. And there is a statutory consultation process required for that and a cost benefit analysis and so on. But it's much more nimble once one gets to that. And in fact, that's a difference between the UK and the EU system where it the rules are all essentially legislative. They're not made by the regulators in the delegated sense that they are in the UK and to some degree in the US. Well, well, yeah. I, well, I was about to also say it's pretty different, uh, probably in terms of efficiency than, than here in the United States, uh, in terms of sort of both um, what you're referencing in terms of are things political or, or, or technical? You know, that's an interesting contrast since, since here there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, debate that's not necessarily always tied to political party, but but there's certainly a political element to 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 these decisions that that can uh, make decision making slower or or, or harder. Um, you, when you look at the market stuff, okay, so we have the stablecoin regulation, we have the CBDC world, which is really again um, pretty astonishing and, and and very interesting, and then you have the markets. You know, like how do you regulate crypto assets and digital assets? Where are things looking there? So the, the, there's a separate consultation on exactly this, which um, is looking to bring many crypto asset related activities within the regulatory perimeter um, for financial services in the UK. So um, they're looking at crypto asset issuance and disclosure, um, trading, custody and lending, and um, a market abuse framework for crypto assets, which obviously will need particular thought because for many types of crypto asset, you know, it's not like a company is suing shares where the performance of the company affects the value of the crypto asset. Uh, the performance of the crypto asset is turns largely on what happens in the market itself. So, and there will need to be probably international cooperation arrangements for that. It may not be jurisdiction specific. So there are some complex areas as w- in this, and there's a quite a thoughtful consultation paper that raises these issues and seeks um, input. And then there's... Um, a so-called call for evidence. So these are sort of more um, difficult areas where the framework is even harder to apply on decentralized finance or DeFi, um, investment advice uh, and portfolio management and sustainability, particularly for mining and so on, you know, which are well-known users of um, high, high amounts of um, power. Okay. So, so, you know, when you look at these different processes and you had mentioned very briefly the EU and, and, and Mika, are you seeing, you know, any key areas of, of, of divergence, right? So on the one hand, you know, I've taken a, a quick look at some of the, you know, uh, HMTs or the, you know, Her Majesty's uh, Treasury uh, Department there, you know, proposed guidelines. And, and, you know, there you see, as you see in other parts of the world, you know, exchanges, a requirement for exchanges to write requirements on admission standards uh, for crypto firms. And and uh, as you had mentioned, 
disclosures for token issuers when when listing new assets. Do these kinds of things, um, uh, you know, certainly thematically, they seem to dovetail with some of the things that you see in Mika. I mean, Mika is thinking about, you know, using white papers as disclosure devices and, and the like. But are, are you sensing that there may be a different kind of an approach to certain kinds of, of technical areas that are worth um, maybe noting? Yes, I think it's it's at a macro level, Mika sets out effectively to do the same thing, which is to apply the financial services regime, a lot of which was developed by the UK when within the EU, to, um, to, to crypto with digital assets. But the devil's in the detail of how that happens. I mean, I didn't mention that there's also an intention in the UK, most likely to prohibit marketing of crypto assets to retail. And that provides then the backdrop to the allowing of you know, public offerings of crypto and listings of crypto um, in certain situations. I mean, just to take the, the Mika approach, and the UK has something not dissimilar, but I think fundamentally different once one gets into the weeds. You know, on that, Mika is proposing to ban uh, the admission to trading of crypto assets other than e-money tokens and asset reference tokens. Now, what this does, and this is just really an interesting observation, I think, uh, on the way of drafting laws. And, and, and as I've mentioned, in the EU, there is a, a, a legislative um, level. E-money token, I mean, there was something called the E-money directive, which was a directive um, issued without really a, a problem to fix. And it wasn't used for years and years and years. And then it came to, has come to be used in the payments context because it's lighter touch to the, the wider payments regime. But, you know, there are lots of issues about what an e-money token is. It's not an intuitive concept at all. Uh, and similarly, this new idea of an asset reference token is, is you know, introduces yet another concept, um, which is, is just, you know, layered on to everything else. And I think that approach, and this is what I'm finding from clients, of, you know, creating boxes for everything um, and creating new boxes in particular um, is, is not at all user-friendly. And it means that you then have to have legal opinions on whether something's within one category or another category or whatever. And the idea is that um, an issuer has to be a legal entity, an issue, a crypto asset white paper, as you mentioned, uh, to make an offering. And issuers of these asset reference tokens have to obtain authorization uh, before uh, making the offering. Uh, the issuers of EU uh, e-money tokens uh, have to get authorized separately as a credit institution or e-money institution. So, I mean, there's a sort of um, bureaucracy around it, which is, I think, less user-friendly. And so just to show, I mean, in the UK context, essentially the idea is that the so-called multilateral trading facility model will be adopted for um, admission of crypto assets to a trading venue. So that's not totally different from an ATS in the US. So it's a sort of quasi-exchange. It's one thing, it's a, it's a regulatory construct, one level below an exchange with fewer rules, less of a compliance burden. And the idea is that the, that the FCA, the regulator, making rules, not as a legislative matter, will set some general rules for admission and disclosure, and the trading venues themselves will then set out the detailed requirements for disclosure for full admission. And the entity preparing the document would have liability for the document. So what this will do on this model, and obviously there are some points for discussion about this. I mean, should there be some sort of sponsorship regime where a 
regulated firm comes in and takes responsibility for the document? Will will these venues be prepared to take responsibility for foreign entities wanting to list that don't, you know, they have, they, they, the, the regulatory regime doesn't have a grip on? You know, there are, there are some consequential issues which I think can be solved, but but it's flexible. And it basically doesn't introduce these new concepts and this sort of um, new constructs where you then have to break down what is this type of crypto asset. It's just it's, it's much, much simpler. And then for public offerings, same approach, you know, um, the public offers of crypto assets can amount to a securities offering in the, in the view of the government. And if um, and, and therefore... Um, you know, the rules for um, securities token offerings, you know, under the public office and emissions training regime will apply. But again, I mean, obviously, we haven't got spelt out detail. I think you're going to find it's a lot simpler to navigate than the statutory continental approach, which, as I say, starts with these odd categories. You know, that is really quite interesting, you know, both, you know, to the extent to which, um, as you said, you know, it's kind of a general kind of approach, but but also the degree to which there's going to be a little bit more reliance on the exchanges themselves to help write those standards. And I and I and I suppose, you know, the sponsorship model, if I'm reading or if I'm hearing you correctly, that would be in particularly useful, not just for the foreign issuers, but for decentralized assets. So if 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 you have some kind of decentralized asset and you're saying, well, who's responsible? You know, who's going to do it? You know, that there would be some kind of regulated entity that would be designated for helping to prepare either disclosures or other uh, affiliated documents that would be necessary for the admission of that um, product to a a trading venue. And and that's really pretty, pretty interesting. you know, you had mentioned, you know, sort of the more the the, the bureaucracy around the, the the EU approach, even as the EU in many ways has been informed for years by sort of UK approaches to 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 capital markets. How does that sort of spell out? You think? Do you think sort of from a supervisory uh, standpoint? I mean, you know, so let's assume for the moment that all these rules kind of go through. We in the United States may be still sort of looking around, you know, to figure out what exactly what we're going to do, but maybe we'll be watching you guys. And, uh, you know, is there going to be a difference, you think, in terms of just how then supervision plays itself out in the UK versus the EU? And, and what do you think are the sort of salient um, differences? Yeah, and I think there's a fundamental difference there. I mean, the EU, you've got national regulators, most of which are not particularly sophisticated. And in fact, on Brexit, the UK had to, to lend some people to, to continental regulators, pretty much all of them, as I understand it, certainly the main ones, to try and get them up to speed in the markets to avoid market disruption arising from Brexit. So that's just an indication of the difference in um, sophistication. Because, of course, the UK market is a global market. The other ones are domestic ones. And so you've got these sort of multiplicity of domestic regulators, some of which are very basic. And then you've got a, a pan-EU body sitting on top, most notably perhaps in this context, the... Um, uh, European Securities and Markets Authority, ESMA, which aren't that highly staffed. And, you know, there are jurisdictional limitations over what these pan-EU bodies can do in the context of particular member states. So there are potential gaps in supervision between the national regulator and the pan-EU one. There are step-in rights for es- ESMA in certain instances for major firms, but, you know, there are huge jurisdictional issues there. And, and those rights are only given teeth under national law to some degree and so on. So, you know, whereas the UK regulators are heavily staffed up, 
and have focused on one thing only, which is safety and soundness in the financial markets and are familiar with things going on and are already staffed for a very sophisticated market. So I think there is a big difference on on the practicalities. I think sort of haunting or not even haunting, but it's just sort of informing how both the EU talks about its capital markets policy and obviously for the UK is, 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 is you know, we're still in this post-Brexit landscape where people are trying to figure out what policy should look like. How do you view this as sort of informing or, or adding momentum, if one will, or necessity to the UK's approach to digital assets? And like, does it even spill over into... You know, we're talking again about, you know, almost this digital pound, you know, a, a CBDC for, 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 for the UK. Like, does it spill into or sort of add momentum or interest, creativity or pressure, you know, when trying to figure out, you know, how they are going to address this very sort of new but, but, but challenging space? I'm not sure about that. I mean, so, so I mean, the first issue, you know, how, how's the market, you know, what, what's the UK's approach driven by? Has the market going to evolve? I think, um, so under Mika, it's possible for anyone in the EU to reach out from under the umbrella of Mika, opt out of Mika effectively, and buy and sell crypto um, under the regulatory regime of the counterparty. And, and I see it, that as being likely. So if the UK gets this right, I think people in the EU and many other places in the world will opt into benefiting from the UK regime only, and you won't have this cross-jurisdictional nonsense that, that has been a hallmark of some of the discussion over the last few years since Brexit. That's first my first point. Um, retail, by the way, is is separate. Um, I mean, I've said that UK itself is looking to restrict heavily what retail get access to. I mean, actually, under Mika retail, you can do reverse solicitation for retail, retail as well, uh, and that may operate in a similar way, but there are additional issues for retail. So as I see it, the UK is creating something which is largely domestic, which is going to be a domicile of choices effectively for, for business. There will be a need for cross-border cooperation on certain issues, potentially like market abuse, uh, in order to close down bad actors. But I don't think that needs to be on every single topic. I think it can be on these specific ones which overspill a jurisdictional boundary. I think there needs to be heavy supervision that's sophisticated and attuned to what's going on. And I think the use of AI could be relevant there. But then we get to your CBDC thing. You know, the, the point there, I think, is there needs to be an on-chain payment instrument. And if the market becomes vast and people are using stablecoin or, you know, currencies that are, that are not controlled by a state, that could cause issues. So I think that's why countries are, are very carefully considering CBDC. I mean, you know, query whether, you know, and there are also stable coins or, or you know, coin backed by commodities, you know, rather like the old gold standard. So I think there's a separate big moment for currencies that is arising because of this technology as a, as a, as a consequential, because it begs the question, okay, well, what are you going to allow people to use as a non-chain instrument? And in fact, can you control it? But at least having a domestic offering, a national offering out there early on might be a sensible thing if countries want to carry on their role of being the main issuers of currency and managing those currencies. Well, domestically, and we see this in the United States, and, and it's it's pretty common, even domestically, look, nobody you know, there's, there's, the government can be of, of different minds, you know, when it, when it comes to particularly crypto assets, but 
certainly other issues as well. I mean, w- when you look at the, the key players domestically in the UK, uh, you have HMT, you have FCA, the markets regulator, you have the Bank of England. I mean, where do you see sort of the pressure points when it comes to that, you know, the, the interoperability domestically of the regulatory community? Well, I think the bodies are largely aligned. I mean, obviously, they've got all got different functions. So the Treasury is you know, in charge of making sure the legislative framework and the powers are adequate to the job. I mean, the Bank of England, in particular, through a committee called the Financial Policy Committee, is, is in charge of systemic risk, which obviously can arise from this, particularly as financial firms start to engage in crypto more. And then you've got the, you know, the PRA, which deals with large banks and investment firms, insurers. And then you've got um, the, the Financial Conduct Authority, which deals with market conduct, re, you know, retail protection, you know, clean markets and so on. So each of them has got a different role. I'm not seeing anything which indicates to me there's not a collaborative process going on. But obviously, given those roles, there are going to be points coming out from different bodies according to where the problems lie. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll end with this uh, question uh, in terms of your opinion of, of, of us and, 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 and what do you think really the UK is looking at? I mean, you know, global regulators look at their peers all the time. Uh, policies diverge. Um, statements can diverge or converge. What do you think is the, the perspective of, of, of the British authorities uh, and markets as to sort of the, the, the US approach to digital uh, markets? Well, you've got a lot of federal bodies involved. You've got the SEC, CFTC, FTC, IRS, OCC, and FinCEN, right? And some of the debate over how to regulate crypto seems to me to do with jurisdiction. So there's a massive debate where US um, spokespeople and companies talk about, you know, whether something's a commodity or not, or a security or whatever which has to do, it seems to me, with legacy concepts and legacy jurisdictions. And I think that's somewhat clunky. Now, then there is there are some very clever people who then intellectualize that and say, no, no, actually, these are valid distinctions and everyone else in the world should follow them. But I'm not convinced that they are um, natural you know, ways of carving this up. I mean, there are some validity, there is some validity, you know, some elements uh, of crypto markets, you know, are essentially commodity based and, and should follow that. But I'm not sure the US dividing lines are, are appropriate. So I think that is a major point, which may mean that the US does not have intellectual ownership of the regulatory frameworks globally. That may or not may not matter if the US businesses are offering to the world from the US and it's all under reverse solicitation and people just get what they're given. So that that may be fine. The other, th- the other aspect I'd say about the US is obviously the US had allowed FTX business to take place in the US and has been burnt by that. Um, whereas actually the UK kept out crypto. Um, so I think that psychologically has led to, you know, to a different way of thinking. Whereas I think I think that you know in the U.S. I, th- I sense that there's a massive con- there's this almost some wanting to get ahead and regulate this area and make sure the U.S. is is an intellectual thought leader or amongst those thought leaders. Others, you know, politically in particular, I think are very cautious because of that and feeling that you know we could make this worse. And I think that was just to do with an accident of history of how you know. FTX was able to operate in the US, people have lost money in the US, and so there is an element of people feeling burned. When you look at the global direction, 
for the space? And it's a completely unfair question, but hey, you know, you're you're one of the world's experts. I mean, like, where do you where do you see sort of the world, you know, heading, you know, five years from now? I mean, do, do you see very, very different approaches uh, amongst the regulators with very different sort of specialty um, areas of, 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 of both influence, but also development? Um, uh, or do you see again, a kind of homogenized approach to crypto assets. I mean, like, you know, when you look at, for example, common equity, you know, yes, supervision may be very different, but, you know, you still have some relatively firmly established com- uh, concepts like equity and debt and bonds. You know, like, do, do, do you see us heading in a world of convergence or do you see us heading, you know, to a world of, of, of divergence? It's a very interesting question. I mean, at the moment... The regulators, and I was in some discussions with with a few of them last week, you know, can't agree on basic points of taxonomy and definition. So, you know, I think, you know, at the moment, everyone is there with their whiteboard drafting their own, you know, way of doing it, and they're not interested in other people. In fact, they're not only that, they're going out to all the other regulators and saying, this is how you should do it. And that includes the Americans. They know, here's our, here's our commodity concept, and you guys should all follow that, of course, and so on. So, um, but I think, you know, it seems to me this is a natural, you know, cross-border product. So I think, you know, it's not going to be offered from everywhere. I think there will be a flight to quality. There is, is already a flight to quality in terms of the sophistication of the statutory regulated rules and um, supervisory regime. And I think that will get exacerbated. There may be a few hubs. I think there will be a couple of global hubs. I think it'll mimic the financial markets as a whole, because I think it'll be driven by where the people are that are doing the most sophisticated activities and where they're being regulated, and that'll drag in this industry. I think the idea of this industry being able to operate from a tiny place without much sophistication offshore globally is not going to be tolerated by the rest of the world. Barney, as always, great conversation, and I learned a lot. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me again, uh, Chris. Uh, Good to see you. One of the big challenges with regulating crypto assets is what most people believe is a delicate balancing act between competition and supervision. On the one hand, many regulators have a mandate to ensure that their domestic markets are competitive and that their own domestic markets can compete with other globally competitive markets. But mission number one around the world is supervision, that is, ensuring that markets don't blow up and that they are well-regulated and overseen. Now, interestingly enough, supervision and competition aren't always mutually exclusive. Markets can't exist without rules, and regulators can, with hard work, ensure that their regulations attain reputations as well-regulated and thereby diminish the risk for investors investing in the country and, by extension, raising the international competitiveness of their domestic markets. Now, the UK, for its part, finds itself at a crossroads as it attempts to dance this delicate dance. On the one hand, free of Brexit, it's pretty much able to do whatever it wants domestically, including any attempt to attract foreign companies to its shores. But if it gets these rules wrong, it not only faces the risk of egg on its face, but also very real consequences for how investors and the rest of the world may view these newly independent markets. Barney has given us a sense that this journey is just beginning. 
And it's my hunch that the country's initial decisions, especially in controversial and challenging areas like crypto, will be telling in just how it intends to run the race. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.